Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Dating apps might peak on Valentine's Day, but they're a gushing sluice way for frauds known as romance scams. Now they're getting extra attention from at least five federal agencies, including the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It's a national awareness campaign called Dating or Defrauding. Joining me this Valentine's Day with more, the director of the CFTC's Office of Customer Education and Outreach, Melanie DeVoe. Ms. DeVoe, good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I guess my first question is, of all the agencies that there are others, but why the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in an app scam? I would think definitely Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, FTC, which are also involved, but why you guys? So we're not the only agency that's involved in this. As you mentioned, there are several agencies looking at this, including the FBI. But the reason the CFTC is involved is because the fraudsters use cryptocurrency commodities as their pitch to get people to invest. And so the line goes, hey, you can make a ton of money investing in crypto and hey, my uncle or my aunt or some family relative has some insider information, you're going to make tons of money. So because there are futures contracts in cryptocurrencies, the CFTC has anti-fraud jurisdiction over our cryptocurrency commodities, even in the non-futures markets. The fraudsters also like to use foreign exchange or Forex as their pitch. And they'll say, hey, you can make a ton of money in Forex, which is another product that the CFTC has that anti-fraud jurisdiction over. So that's why the CFTC is involved. These types of come-ons to invest in cryptocurrency or Forex or whatever it might be, these tend to come, I guess, later on in the encounter that someone has on a dating app. In other words, don't they spend time I've never been on one, so I don't know how they work, but, you know, married 40 years. But do they get you in based on the normal functions of a dating app? And then as you get to know that non-person that you think is a person on the other end, that's when they bring on the scams and the investment schemes? That's absolutely right, Tom. This is a very long, confident scam, and these people are very patient. So the the quote-unquote relationship can build up over weeks, even months before the idea of investing is brought on. So yeah, it's a very elaborate scam. We actually coined the term, and others have used it too, but financial grooming fraud because of the grooming aspect to this fraud. It's very devastating for the people who are brought into it. And the person that is doing the scheming and defrauding could be having a thousand accounts at once going on. And it might even be an artificial intelligence bot, fair to say? That is fair to say that the person underneath a scam could have thousands of accounts. And we have seen reports in the news that AI is also being used. The CFTC, I don't believe, has publicly made that claim yet. But, you know, with the advance of AI, anything is possible. They can clone your voice. AI can do all these crazy things. So I think, yeah, we have to be cognizant that it could be used in these scams. And tell us the other agencies and what kind of setup you have. And is it a task force? Is it a memorandum of understanding? What's going on from a programmatic standpoint federally? We have formed some informal alliances over this dating or defrauding campaign. It was initially launched in 2022 with a couple of partners, 
At the time, we had the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and others. And now, for this most recent campaign, we've reached out informally to a bunch of other agencies to let them know that we're focused on this and to provide them with additional information about what you know our social media campaigns are doing. In addition to the federal regulators, we're also talking to state regulators about this issue through, there's an organization called NASA that is the North American Securities Administrators Association. We're working with NASA as well to let them know what we're doing and we share our customer advisories with these other agencies. We are speaking with Melanie DeVoe. She's director of the Office of Customer Education and Outreach at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And do we know any idea of the value of the money that might be lost in a given year among people that fall victim to these scams? So the FBI recently came out with one of their spokesmen said that in 2023, the total losses reported were $3.5 billion. That's billion with a B. So this is a lot of money flowing to, unfortunately, on the other side, it's international organized crime syndicates out of Southeast Asia. That's a lot of money going from the United States to crime gangs. We coined the term financial grooming gangs just to be a little more specific about who we're talking to. They're mostly beyond the reach then of federal law enforcement and of the CTFC and of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because they're just out of reach. So that's an interesting question, Tom. There are some ways that we can reach these gangs at the CFTC, and we've done a bunch of things. My office, the Office of Customer Education and Outreach, is trying to prevent the victimization through raising awareness of the fraud. Our whistleblower office has put out a whistleblower alert, basically trying to encourage people to provide tips if they know about domestic financial grooming fraud activities. If people bring a tip to us and it leads to successful enforcement action, the commission's allowed to pay the whistleblower 10 to 30% of what we collect. So that's kind of, you know, when you're talking about big sums of money, if someone's able to bring something, that could be a payout, you know, assuming all the other criteria are met. And then finally, our Division of Enforcement has brought a case in this matter, the Debbie X matter, which we reference in our press release. So there are things that the domestic agencies can do because even if the fraud is happening and orchestrated overseas, there are domestic actors who are helping these fraudsters. They're helping them in a couple ways. They're setting up local bank accounts in the United States, and they're also setting up cryptocurrency accounts with our major cryptocurrency exchanges. So there are definite touch points that domestic agencies can work on here. It strikes me that someone from the task force and the alliance of agencies could get onto one of these apps and, if possible, like string the perpetrator along long enough, almost like the old fashioned of, you know, keeping someone on the telephone till they can trace where the phone is located. You know, I'm dating myself, but it seems like you could triangulate in more closely on the perps if you could keep them stringing along and have them thinking that they're on the cusp of someone sending them a lot of money. That's an interesting question, Tom. I can't really comment on what other agencies are doing, but I do want to talk just briefly about when criminals use cryptocurrency, that's a permanent record that is traceable. 
So you can trace the movement of money through the cryptocurrency networks. You know, they do leave a trail when they're using that crypto. It is an interesting thing that you can trace back. And there have been several recent cases where people have been able to trace this stuff back, even though the crime was committed a while ago. So there are interesting things that the CFTC and our other you know, agencies that are working on this can do in the space. And you're also having a public outreach program for awareness on the part of consumers of what's going on, too. Yeah, we are doing public outreach. This is, you know, we're very fortunate that you were willing to invite the CFTC to join us to talk about this important issue. I'm personally going to speak with other federal regulators. I'm actually going to San Francisco today to speak to federal regulators tomorrow. I'll be mentioning this. And then I'm also going to be speaking to some state regulators next week about this. So we're definitely, you know, working to bring awareness. We also have a social media campaign that the wonderful people at the Office of Public Affairs at the CFTC have done. So watch out for that on LinkedIn. It's on Facebook. And I believe it's on Twitter, which we're now calling X, I guess. But anyway, they've done some very creative things. And so if someone is looking for information from a federal agency on social media, I guess now they're adding check marks and stars and colored dots and stuff so that, you know, that's a legitimate account. With the CFTC, you know, that's a great question. Uh, Since I'm not an OPA, that's probably more of a Donna question. I'm sorry, but we do post from our CFTC official account. All right. Melanie DeVoe is director of the Office of Customer Education and Outreach at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can 
bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. 
and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years, and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency, and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.